Mana 3 Media. Welcome to First Listen. I'm Derek. I'm Justin. First Listen is a series of conversations where we hear from individuals from their own standpoints of what it's been like to grow up black in America. Meet Ashley. My name is Ashley Brick James. I am the co founder of Triluna Wellness. I am in the wellness industry,、um, really supporting、uh, mental health and different ways that we can、uh, be intentional about transforming our thinking. I'm originally from Knoxville, Tennessee. I lived there all my life up until I went to college, born and raised in East Tennessee. I grew up in a very, I would say, white community. In the fourth grade, my family made the choice to move to the suburbs of Knoxville. And that was just due to better schooling,、um, just in what my parents' mind, better opportunity. There w a s probably like six black people in my graduating class. So, I wasn't very used to on my day to day basis being around a lot of other black people. But because I was the only black girl, I was always at slumber parties. So, you get the you don't talk black, you don't act black. And we don't think of those as acts of racism when we are younger. But when you think about it now, it's just like, <laughs> Well, how is acting or talking black supposed to be? So at, the, at that age, I was, I, I didn't notice it. But now that I think about it, I mean, those things happened to me all the time where I was told I talked white or I didn't act black. My mother is very pro black. So she always made sure, even with us being in these white communities, that we stay connected to our roots. And I literally mean connected to our roots. Every February, I mean, it was like documentaries all about knowing where we came from. And then I noticed as we got older, she extended that past February because she wanted to know, she wanted us to know that black history was celebrated. All the time. I got an opportunity at a very young age, at the age of eight, to meet Oprah Winfrey and Alex Haley through just different connections that we had. And my parents always put at the forefront black excellence. So even though we were in this white community, we always knew what black excellence looks like and what it meant. And my mother, till this day, She's always going to back to black history facts for us. So it's a continued conversation. What I noticed is when we did move into this neighborhood, because, you know, it is very、uh, a white community, there were some of them who didn't want us there. So we experienced a lot of things in the beginning, our house being rolled. 
my dad's expensive cars being egged. My dad is a big car person. So any opportunity for his vehicles to be destroyed, they were. And I knew at a young age we were targeted because I would overhear my parents' conversations and knew that it wasn't happening to the neighbors around us. We were very close with the um, white family that lived across the street from us, and they were I would say they were our allies before allies were a thing. And so I knew through conversation and I knew from just things that were happening around us. But my parents would have those conversations with us, but wouldn't let us like sit in it too long. Like we would get to it the relevance of it and how it will play out like that through the rest of our life. So we would have those meaningful conversations. You move into communities to feel safe. And then all of a sudden, all these different things were happening to our home. And to me, as a kid, initially, it was like, we're not wanted here. And it didn't take until I got into the schools and then the other children around me, my skin color didn't matter to them because, you know, as kids, we don't think about things like that. So being in school and having those relationships gave me the security that I needed. And I took that security back to me when at home, obviously I had the security of my, my family, but knowing that that's how they treated me in my everyday setting made me feel like I was going to be okay. The first time I experienced racism towards me was when I started playing sports. I was normally the only black person on the team. And I remember we played one of our rivals in middle school and we were getting off the bus and as we were getting off the bus to go into the school, some of the boy basketball players were out there to greet us, quote unquote. But that was the first time that I had been called the N-word um, just right there in my face. Like, of course, I've heard it and I've seen it through movies and, and things like that. But that was the first time that it was targeted towards me. And I guess... Before it was because it was things that I, I, I saw in movies, but conversations that we would have in our home, I think it was just kind of like, wow, this does happen. It's very sad that at the age of 11, because my niece is 11, that I had to experience that. But even at the age of nine, seeing a firsthand done to my family when moving there and then this just being added to it. And at that moment, I knew that like where we live is, although it's a great community, we have to be very mindful and keep our eyes open at all times. Different acts of racism throughout my childhood pushed me to be greater. I always use that as a motivation, just to be good, just to show someone that I'm not what you think I am. I'm better than what you think I am. So 
as I reflect on that as an adult, I never let that hold me back. I let that be a motivation because if you think about it at the time, I would say the number one most inspirational black person that we've had for a very long time is Oprah. And I've known her story for a very long time, from the time I was a young child. And I just kept that motivation. I have felt that I needed to work harder than my white peers. I mean, playing sports. I mean, everyone naturally thinks because you're black, you're supposed to be great at sports. But I work really hard at that to be better, to get noticed. Even in, I think I experienced that the most when I started my career in sales. I noticed that I worked really, really hard for a very long time, hit goals that, you know, were people said that I could not hit. And, but my white counterparts would get promoted before me. I saw that multiple times. And I actually left a job because I saw the unfairness that was going on around me. Um, and I remember a conversation with one of my sales managers at one point. I mean, we were one of the highest, you know, bringing in the most revenue offices. And I remember a conversation that he had. It's going to be great when we get the young college girls in here to go out and sell for us. And I know that all the young college girls that he spoke of were white. And I had been trying to fight for this position for at least a year. And just to see them straight out of college, mind you, I worked for this company for four years, come straight out of college and be given these huge accounts they have no history on or really no experience managing or running. It was a big smack in my face. And I knew at that point that if I didn't stand up for myself or use my voice, it would it would play a part in my life going forward. It would hinder me from using my voice in the future. After I left that company is when I went into my yoga journey and I really wanted to connect with self. Um, and I did a lot of self discovering and things like that. And that's when I made the decision I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But the one thing that I discovered in yoga was there was no representation. In Nashville alone, I only knew of two black yoga instructors and I went to their classes to learn from them. I ended up doing my first yoga teacher training with a company based out of Pittsburgh in New York and I was the only. And during that training, I was just surprised that the black and brown community hadn't been introduced to this form of healing. You know, that yoga was a, it was a resource for healing. And I feel like why a lot of entrepreneurs or black or brown people are not represented in different spaces is, is the standard that they set back in the day that this is what it's supposed to look like. And I'm gonna use the word whitewashed. Everything has been whitewashed since early, early days and it's trickled down. I mean, yoga isn't even the white woman's, you know, it was something that was taken. And I think just like a lot of different things 
from the minority communities, a lot of things were taken. And there's this different representation, there's this different face that's put on it. And then it gets, it, like everything else, it gets lost. And until you find that per person or people to find that connection, to be that representation, is then when you're going to be able to see it. Over the last five years where Six years ago, I knew of two black yoga instructors. Now I know of 10 in Nashville. And that's because we start seeing them more. And it's like, it's okay for me to show up in this space. It's, it, it's safe for me to be in this space. If, if she did it, if I did it, it's safe for me to do in the entrepreneur space. And that was a big part of me and my business partner, Elizabeth Moore, both of us coming together is she's a white woman, I'm a black woman, and it was the first time that we had ever known of as a black and a white woman coming together to run a business 50-50 and being super intentional about building the most diverse, inclusive team there was. And she doesn't like to hear this, but it's the truth. Everything changed for me. People would listen to me. They saw her, they saw me. Oh, okay. And what's so crazy is I'm the voice of the, of the both of us. And, but just having her, you know, I've come a lot, a, a long way in my business because people take me a little bit more serious now. And that's unfortunate. And, but I even tell her, like, you've helped me go further in this career. And I mean, she takes that, you know, she's grateful for that, but she's sad about that. You know, it hurts her to hear that, but it's unfortunate, but it's the truth where I was once here and people barely picking up the phone for me. And now I'm here. And it's really like, like I said, they see us together and it's just like, Oh, it means a little bit, you know, it, it looks a little different. And then I think our community speaks for us too. You come to our yoga classes, you're going to see 50-50 of everybody in there. And I think that our word and our messaging and then what people see back that up. And so people are keen to take you a little bit more serious and have conversations with you then. As a black entrepreneur, it is very crucial that we educate ourselves about the things that are out there. There's programs out there and it is getting out of the mindset that we are going to have these obstacles that is preventing us to take major steps for ourselves. Um, but I think it is very smart to network with other people of different backgrounds to help you get to where you're going. I mean, it's just like anything, right? Like if we, I mean, we've been sitting at the table for a very long time and it's just been us. But now you have, now I have Elizabeth at the table too, that's also going to fight just as hard for me. And I think it's a trickling effect. Like when all of this started, we were encouraging people to have conversations with the right people. And what I mean by that is white people having conversations with white people. We've been having conversations <laughs> with white people for a very long time. Now it's our time, their time to come together and do some deep 
underlining work. And I think that once you have that ally or group of allies who are going to fight for you and fight with you, I think that is could do you a lot of justice because let's just be honest, we've been fighting for a long time and certain things we're just gonna, not going to fight about. And in the, in the case of the ally, they're ready. They're ready to take on any battle for you. And, and that's important though, right? Because that's where the consistency comes. That's why I feel like over time it's gotten lost is because we've had the black people using their voices and we've had a, a teeny amount of allies that are using their voices. But I really feel like this time that a lot of people woke up and there it's a lot of voices that need to be heard now. I feel like everything that has occurred this year has hit in a different way. We have been seeing black people be killed on camera for a very long time. But I think this year we, we had no choice but to really see it. We're locked in our homes. It's everywhere. And I think this year we is a year of emotion. And because of all the other emotion, this just hit a little different because we're already on the edge of breaking. And I think continuously seeing this happen just touched and hurt in a, in a whole nother way. What it has done for me, it has allowed me to dig deeper into my blackness, if that makes sense. It has allowed me to use my voice in ways that I've never used my voice before. It has allowed me, most importantly, to have conversations with my white friends that I probably would have never had before because I didn't want to start anything. But this year, me and my business partner had the hardest conversation that we've ever had in the three years that we've known each other. But it had to be real and it had to be authentic. I had to let her know that her reaction to what was happening wasn't enough for me, especially what she told me she wanted this company to be with me. And I had to let her know that the work is not easy and it's forever ongoing. I've had uh, that talk with one of my executive team leaders. I've had talks with uh, the black people on our team about using their voices and really understanding where, you know, we're having all these diversity and inclusion courses and people think it's just for the white people, but it's for the black people too. There's definitions that go along with things now. And it's a lot of things that we as black people can use as a resource to educate ourselves of things that have happened to us over time to help deal and unravel the trauma that we've buried and oppressed for so, so long. So I'm going to say this year, it hit different emotionally. It hit different, you know, mindset, thinking wise, my business. It just was very powerful. And I think on the receiving end for the white community, for the people who wanted to hear and the people who wanted and was ready to be activated, went into action. And they're still working now. It wasn't just a phase from February to July. They're still doing the work. 
when Elizabeth and I had this conversation, it, it, it changed our relationship. I felt like my friend heard me. Um, and it was, it was the first time that I felt like one of my white friends really cared about me. And, and I know that because the way that we do business is different. The way we hire is different. Everything about everything about our business is different. And that's from, we just launched a box, a box collection. And Elizabeth was very intentional by working with, you know, black and brown companies. She's very intentional about doing the research behind them and making sure it aligns. And I just think that that's truly special because not only is she doing this, but it's like after that hard conversation, which I wasn't sure how it would go, would she receive this well? Would we be business partners in the end? It just changed stuff. I feel comfortable. Like, I feel like I can be myself. And a lot of black people can relate to this. Like, we put on this mask. We've been putting on this mask for so long and showing up in these spaces to be who we are expected to be. And in that moment, I felt like I didn't have to, not that I was pretending with her, but I felt like I can genuinely show up for her like I show up for my best friends. I didn't have to alter how I spoke or be embarrassed about like the way I went about things. It was just like she fully accepted me at that moment for everything that I was. And I see it every day. I see it in everything that she does. When it comes to true allyship, people feel like they have to do everything. And the one thing that I always say in our diversity and inclusion series is find what resonates with you and start there. I feel like this, this, this is a learning and a part of growth and is something that is not going to be fixed in a month or two or a year or two years. Once you sign up to be a true ally, you're, you're, that's what you are for life. Because at the end of the day, you will never know what it feels like to be a person from the uh, BIPOC community. Like you will never know. But what you can do is educate yourself enough to be able to support in your own way. Whether that's marching, whether that's, you know, um, uh, reparations, uh, whatever that may look like to you. I think everyone's journey is different. Um, and I also feel like at this point where we are that white people shouldn't rely on black people to tell them what to do. I think it's a lot of white people who are out here that are doing the work. And I think that is so much being asked of black people right now that maybe you find this community, a white community that you choose to grow with.
that you choose to have your conversations with, maybe book clubs around it where you're having these interactions. Now, I'm not saying like not having conversations with black people, but I feel like there's a lot of white people using their voices right now and doing a lot of work. And then I don't think the work has to be completely on the black people telling the white race what to do. Um, when I think of systemic racism all together, and we'll go organizations, because I talk about this a lot, and I think it trickles down from the top all the way down. And what I mean by that is if your leaders that are in place aren't making this a conversation or an area that they're willing to say, I don't know, I may mess up, I may do all the wrong things. If they're opposed to saying all of that, I don't think that there is a change in order for an organization to be well when it comes to social injustice and social justice. I feel like if the leaders at the top continue to hire the same people, um, having the same types of people sit at the table, they're never going to be willing to have those upward conversations to change the dialect and change the tone of that company or organization. It starts from the top. We have a very diverse community, so I needed to know that everyone on this team knew how to communicate with different people, how to importantly listen if somebody's trying to, you know, uh, listen to you and to ignore spiritual bypassing, which is that everything is going to be okay. Pray about it. The love and light, what we normally get from the receiving end and just tying it all back together is first listen. Um, I think that that is always the place to start. And that's, let me be very clear. That's not calling up all your black friends or black people that you're associated with and trying to have coffee. I feel like secondly, there is, I think, understanding white supremacy, understanding definitions that go with that white privilege, spiritual bypassing, definitions that are associated. I feel like when you can put definitions to words, you're able to actually see maybe things that you've been doing that you didn't even realize. And I think it's a whole new awakening. And like I said, I, I think that's not only for the white community, but for the black community, because I feel like we've been oppressing things for so long. And now we have definitions to go with them. So we're able to recognize what's being done to us. I feel like learning, it's one thing to get, you know, black and brown people on your team, but how, how do you make them feel safe and, in, in, and inclusive when they're with you? Like now that they're at the dance, you know, what are we going to do to keep them interested in and, and stay at the dance, basically, right? Um, I think it's continued education, like we talked about earlier, it's ever learning, it's ever, you know, being intentional about things. I mean, it's work that you can't be on one day and off the next. All this that I'm sharing, we say it 
to the world because we want the world to know it's not easy and it's going to be hard and you're going to have to have hard conversations. And, but if people, like I said, if our team, our friends, if they don't see us doing this, I mean, we're not going to be able to have that much of a change. I really enjoyed um, the conversation with Ashley. Uh, her parents really set a strong foundation for her. Um, you know, and, and they wanted her to see examples of black excellence so that she knew and she had that foundation of who she was as an individual uh, growing up. But even with all of that, you know, she still experienced racism. Uh, but she really talked about how even through that experience, you know, her neighbors um, were really a, a support for them and was an ally. Mm. Right. And even back then, and then this had to be probably um, 80s to, to early 90s uh, to where that word ally, you know, a, a white person um, um, standing up in support for for an African-American or a black person. You know, we saw that, you know, in civil rights time where individuals would actually, you know, join the cause yeah. and, and support outright. Um, but for her, you know, to have that neighbor, you know, to be nine years old, to not, you know, to not even really know what's truly going on, but to see that was very important and, and key to, uh, you know, take the next step in her journey. Yeah, I love Ashley. Um, I've worked with her and her business partner, Elizabeth, on some other projects. And uh, I loved her um, vulnerability and sharing her story. And um, the story about her and Elizabeth having like kind of that tough conversation mm -hmm. last year and how much it meant to her for like Liz to get it um, was so powerful. And I, I can't help but think that if we had more conversations like that, yeah. you know, if M Americans sat down and just had frank, open communication mm -hmm. um, about um, their experience and and we actually listened to each other. Yeah. Um, how much further down the road we would be mm -hmm. um, when it comes to a race and our race relations. Um, yeah. I don't know. That was very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what I, what I gathered from a lot of that is it's going to take tough conversations. Yeah. Right. But in those conversations you just mentioned, you know, you, you've got to listen. Right. And and, you know, we've said this before, um, but when you listen, it has to be empathetic. You yeah. know, you have to listen empathetically. Uh, but once you have that that tough conversation, I think oftentimes, you know, we try to figure out what the end game or the end result is going to be. Right. We, we try to play it in our head. If I have this conversation, it's going to go all wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that is the way we see it. And so. We don't even take the first step or the, the step to actually address or have those tough conversations, right? You, you have to make it to the climax of the, of the mountain or the top of the mountain, the climax of the, of the story before you can come down and then things begin to be easy for you. Going back to the whole uh, concept of, of listening, I mean, that's why we started this whole series, mm -hmm. First Listen. It's, it's the first, we got to listen. We have to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And honestly, uh, you know, the white community, it's our, it's our main responsibility to listen. And I think for so long, um, we listen, uh, like a lot of our relationships that we have in our lives, we listen so that we can respond. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, we listen to, to, to figure out what we're going to say next or, mm -hmm. or to, to defend whatever. And I think the more that we can listen 
and just mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. Like l- let's just listen and assess mm-hmm. and 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 review and 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 just really ponder and take in what what is the black community telling us mm-hmm. and what are we what what do we not know you know mm-hmm. and and again this is why we wanted to do this was to tell the, tell stories of people and their experience growing up black in america because i don't know and it's hard for me to how do how can i be empathetic how can i learn if i don't listen to mm-hmm. these stories right. you can't argue with someone's story yeah you can't argue with well that didn't that's not true right (laughs) right yeah it is this is this person's reality yeah so that's the goal for this whole series yeah 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 thank you for joining us see ya first listen is hosted and produced by derek and justin and is part of the mana 3 media network we'd love for you to click subscribe and tell a friend about us you can also rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you download podcasts For more information, check out our show notes, and we hope you join us for our next episode, dropping very soon.